This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got another special guest today. This guest is a friend of mine. We invested together, done some legal work for him, known, known each other for a little while now. Uh, he's a physician. He's an entrepreneur. He has several startup companies. He's a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. He's one of the smartest guys I know. Please help me welcome Harsha Moulet. Harsha, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for thanks for the really good introduction, Ford. Uh, glad to be glad, glad to be here. Well, great, glad to have you. T- I know I know you obviously, but for our for our audience that may or may not, please tell us a little bit more of your background, and we'll get into how you got into real estate and, and in MHP in particular. Great. So I started off as a physician, grew up in India, moved here uh, ten years ago. Uh, we have a, a family business, real estate background, back home in India, kind of wanted to emulate uh, real estate ventures in America, but it's obviously a different playground. Uh, took me a couple of years to learn. We started off with, uh, while working as a doctor, I, I take paid time off 15 days a month. That gave me a lot of time to spend, uh, go, go to go to these real estate seminars, learn, learn more, a lot of stuff. Started off in multifamily space. Uh, this was about 2016, 2017. The market was very hot. Uh, then we were looking to kind of venture into something where market is not as hot, but would provide us a good segue to kind of focus on real estate deals. And that's how a buddy of mine kind of told me about mobile home parks at the end of 2017, 2018. Took me about a year to learn about them. That's eventually kind of felt like that's a great asset class. Uh, and we can talk more about why, or what the key points are in the mobile home park space that we like, but that's how we got into mobile home park space. Prior to mobile home park space, we did a bunch of apartment complexes, uh, redevelopment projects in Midtown, Kansas City, uh, in the commercial real estate space, uh, mostly in gentrified areas, uh, syndicated deals. Uh, right now we do acquire like two to four properties every year in the syndication model. Whenever possible, if we see good deals, uh, we, we try to be as LPs uh, funding those deals and so on and so forth. It's, it's kind of a pretty big spectrum of what we do, but we stick to our fundamentals and we just want to be in the right asset class at the right time. No, no makes sense. And I know from, from deals we've looked at together, one thing you've got a keen eye for is is kind of looking at the numbers and looking, for, looking at assumptions. Because as, as we both know, as a, you're a syndicator, I'm a syndicator as well. And there's a lot of numbers you can manipulate. You know, and there's a lot of variables into a, into a pro. You can look at a spreadsheet. Oh, great. Well, what if you can manipulate the cap rate a little bit, the interest rate a little bit, the lease absorption rate a little bit, market rents a little bit. And you do that three, four, five times, it's exponential and exponential growth. So give me some, give us some tips and tactics as to what you look for as an LP. And then also when you're, you know, just if you're going to be a GP as a syndicator, you know, what you do to be kind of bulletproof. That's I, I kind of look at it like that. Like, I think I've told you this actually that, you know, I played baseball and in baseball, you get three strikes, but as syndicator, it's a one strike game. I'm like, game. You, can't, you can't mess up. I can't mess up. So you don't want to get caught your hand in the cookie jar. You don't want to fail project. You don't want to have unrealistic expectations. Yeah. So like, let's get it right. First time, every time. Um, so, and so far so good, but all right. But tell me, it's tell a, me about your, your analysis. 
It's, it's a challenge, meaning uh, for someone new to real estate, especially when you talk about these high net worth accredited people that we work with, mostly I work with physicians, 95%, 5% here and there. Like I have passive investors who are attorneys or uh, some sort of high like, level engineers from the California area. Uh, and folks, they, they uh, it, it's sad, but they're not very educated on what cash flow means, what IRR means. Well, uh, a syndicator might go and pitch them, hey, the IRR is like 30%, but they're like, they're on their performance, it says the sale cap is 4%. Like you and I know the sale cap is 4% is unreasonable, uh, but they don't know. They're going to look at the IRR and say, you know what, this deal is great. I'm going to put my money into this deal. Or on the other side, I'm pitching this same investor a deal which says, hey, IRR is only 16%, but my sale cap is more reasonable, seven and a half to eight cap. Uh, which is more realistic, but obviously the the guy, the greater investor, so to speak, is would prefer a higher IRR, but they wouldn't know how these numbers will work out until the end of the life cycle of the deal, which is five to ten year time frame. So it takes it takes a lot of convincing to kind of get them up to speed with, hey, you know what, this is the market comps in the last two years. We have seen that the sale cap is averaging between six to eight based on the location for sale cap is under real estate. And it takes time to drill in that piece of information to investors. Uh, most of the time, like these email newsletters, they work sometimes, but most of the folks who are busy, they don't, they tend to look at it as promotional content and they don't pay attention to it. So it takes multiple phone calls, one-on-one -on -one conversation, meet them in person, talk to them. Uh, small bits and pieces of these information, like uh, I try to pass it on as one-on-one -on -one information to these investors saying, and that's when they know, okay, then I present them a deal next time. They just don't completely blow it up. Uh, compare, comparing that to some unrealistic IRR numbers and they say, okay, this is something that we know about. Uh, but otherwise, to your question on oh, what should LPs look for, I think uh, there's a lot of due diligence that needs to be done. Uh, I, I like to call LP investment structure, there's a famous thing. Everybody tries to call it passive investment. In my mind, I don't think it's passive. I call it semi-passive. Mm -hmm. There is still a lot of work that needs to be uh, done prior to putting in money into an like as an LP. Uh, you have to look into the operator experience, uh, what have they done in the past? How many have they, like, I think completing the whole cycle is really important for operator. Uh, it, for example, we know, I know, I personally know a couple of operators in Kansas City. They were just starting out three to four uh, years ago, very aggressive, four to five deals per year. And, and nobody knows uh, what their like exit, exit plan is, but they keep promising these 30, 40 IRRs, which are unrealistic. And it's hard to kind of like, you know, put them to like a, a test because we don't know what they're going to do. So uh, I think with operators, you just have to look at their past experience and their boots on the ground and uh, how their performance look. This is where it gets tricky. When you look at performance, like I said, it's, it's a challenge uh, for a regular folk to know what normal, normal uh, underwriting is to kind of separate it from real realistic underwriting. And that's kind of where like, they should probably reach out to other experienced folks to learn what a normal uh, estimates are. Uh, so that would help them obviously have a legal person look at it, just don't sign a document uh, because it, it just looks very uh, lucrative deal. So I think it's a combination of a lot. I think it would take at least like, 20 to 30 days to do the work of due diligence, even on an LP um, standpoint. Interesting. Yeah, I, th I think from my experience, you're the most diligent LP I've ever met because you get, you ask a million questions and then you understand the numbers and 
you even have when you, if there's something the PPM you, you don't understand or you want to second, you've hired your own legal counsel to review it. And that's, I think that's going to set apart your, your investments as LP and it's going to make you set you up as a better GP on the deals you do the syndication because I, I see that. I look at a lot of deals and put some money in other people's deals, you know, one to learn, but two to see if they're messing up, you know, frankly, and then see what not to do. But I mean, I, I was just thinking recently, you know, there's, there's two types of ways I feel like a GP can mislead or misinform LPs. And, and one is by aggressive assumptions. And, and you covered that things like, you know, oh, look, the cap rates, you know, the IRR is huge, but the, the cap rate um, is, is influencing them. The cap rate's unrealistic. So your, your variable that's an assumption is, is leading to an end result that's unrealistic. That I think is um, malicious. And sometimes there's another way of misinformation. I just looked at this on a syndication, uh, another mobile home park operator, I was in, under the hood on his PPM and such. And there was a misinformation based on a lack of understanding of the financial metrics. Um, in particular, interest return is a pretty pretty complicated concept for a lot of people measuring, you know, cash inflows and outflows, the time timing of, of such, you know, debt pay down, appreciation and cash flow. Um, it kind of blends the overall yield, as you know, but this other person was just taking the end net proceeds. And let's say it was it was three hundred dollars, and they're saying it took us three years to get there. So that's an average of a hundred dollars per year. And if you invested fifty dollars, okay, it's fifty into one hundred. Like wait, wait a second, you know. And I think I think the real example was like they invested three hundred, so they made a hundred on the three. They said, oh, it's a thirty-three percent return. I was like, but there was no cash flow, and I, and I was just like baffled. I don't I don't think the operator recognized what they were shooting out to their investors was inaccurate. So I don't think it was malicious as much as just uh, misinformed. And as a result that misinformed other people. And, you know, I, I want to actually do a whole podcast, you know, Logan, you know, Logan, my business partner, who's another financial guy, I'm, I'm still arm wrestling him. Like we just need to shred these other guys, P PPMs and offering memorandums. And he's like, that's too mean. So like, all right, all right, maybe we won't. But, but I mean, I think it's a, it's a disservice to the community to have misinformation out there and, and you're, and you're letting, you're doing a good job. I know of uh, vetting the operators and vetting the PPMs to make sure that that doesn't happen. No, I, I think I, in regards to your podcast idea, I definitely think you should do it more, more so to educate people more than anything. I mean, meaning I just feel bad for uh, limited partners or passive high net worth folks who get into these deals expecting those unrealistic falsely promised numbers, so to speak, and then five, 10 years down the line, they get burnt. Uh, I think if anything, like that's kind of what I try to do is, I mean, I don't have a podcast like uh, a show like you, but uh, my interactions are mostly one-on-one. -on -one. When I talk to guys, I try to ask them, hey, what are you looking at? Uh, they kind of tell me a couple of decks that they looked at. And then I say, hey, this is what I think happens there. And this is why I think those numbers are not good. So I, I think educationally, I think uh, there, there is a lot that folks like you and I can do uh, to kind of look, get the word out saying, hey, there's so many ways that people can mess up those numbers in a bad way. No, good. I'm going to tell Logan we're, we're voting on so far. Um, you just got an equal vote with him, by the way. Um, so that's, those are some good, those are definitely some good tips from on the syndication standpoint. Um, as a mobile home park owner, let me know, tell me some of the tips you learned, you know, on your first deal and as you're going into other deals now, um, what you've learned so far, you can share with our audience and, and how you're going to react differently in the future. 
Uh, or, I, I guess, perhaps the same. Perhaps you didn't make any mistakes in your first couple deals, you know. But uh, typically, we all learn as we go along in deals, and, and new asset class is always a new challenge for uh, investors. Right. I, from where I stand, I try to be extra conservative or extra uh, protective in the way I do deals. Uh, I, I, I'm not very bold, and I don't go do things and then learn later. Before I step in, I try to make sure I have at least one or two folks around me that know the industry really well, so that they can walk me through it in detail. So even if it comes at an expense of certain percentage of the deal, but not, you know, it makes sense because uh, as a syndicator, like uh, going back to your rule book, one strike that's it. Like you can you can do a mistake. Uh, it's it's a it's a brand. It's a name of the company. It's, it's people have trust in what we do, and you don't want to ruin that. Uh, if that comes at like, Sense of certain percentage of the deal, I'm more than happy to pay that up and work with the uh, right team to to get started. So when when I first moved to Mobile Home Park deal, uh, you were one of the first persons that I spoke to. We we had a free tour of your Belton Park, uh, great experience. We felt like you know what, this is something that that, that really works. And that was the first time when we had a practical sense of you know, this is an industry that we want to be in. Uh, until then, there were so many misconceptions on mobile home park, trailer park, quote unquote, uh, saying, you know what, you don't want to get into that industry. But that's when we felt that, you know, like it was a good space where you can provide affordable housing to folks and, and, and be on the good side of the industry. Now, uh, to, 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 in regards to tips, I guess the big thing is buying mobile home parks is more intricate than. Uh, getting an apartment complex, so to speak. I've been in both the spaces, so when I compare these, there's a lot of due diligence that goes into mobile home park on a relative scale to apartment complexes. Apartment complexes, you can just hire an inspector, inspector goes, does their thing, okay, HVACs are bad, whatnot, fix it up. But mobile home parks, you most of these have been there for like 50, 60, 70 years. There's a lot of title complication. There's a lot of, utility complications, who knows how the water sewer systems are. There's a lot of grandfathering in, nobody knows what the rules of how many lots this has, can this have more lots. So I believe extra effort needs needs to be put in on upfront before you buy the asset and then later realizing that you did a mistake. Uh, that's kind of where I felt like you need like a strong, uh, uh, somebody that knows the knows the ins and outs better. Like for me, it happened to be you, where like uh, when I first bought my first asset, you were by my side, guiding me through the legal work, title work, zoning. Uh, and, and if if I went into mobile home parks with just with my multi-family background, uh, I would have definitely missed uh, most of those. Uh, and mo- majority of the times, people might be just fine, like the, uh, even not having an MHP specialist by your side, but there is like, many times with the intricacies that I just mentioned, the title work, zoning, grandfathering, that, that you can, there's a high potential for getting born at a later date. So no, that I, I think is a, is a big difference in my opinion. I mean, once it gets uh, gets to, once you buy it, the operations, those are, uh, that's a different whole ballpark. But for me, acquisitions was a big thing that uh, kind of stood out in more MHP space compared to uh, multi-family space. You know, those, those are good points. Thanks for that. I mean, what I find on a regular basis, you know, with some of my clients too, is um, I think the, the biggest of the clients, the biggest of the guys in the industry, the REITs and some of the top top 10 players, they're very sophisticated, right? And they don't, they probably don't make a lot of mistakes. And then you got the, the rookies down here in their first deal and then they feel like they're way 
underperforming compared to the mid-level guys. But what I've found is a lot of times people tackle the small person tackling one deal that's like, this is my own real money and I'm putting my, I'm signing the note myself. They're better due diligence because they're all in and they're a little paranoid. Now they may not be educated to know what a phase one environmental is, but they're educated enough to ask and say, I don't know what I don't know. And, and then they ask where I have a, a new client that owns I don't know, 30 or 35 parts. And I asked them, I said, who's doing your title objections? And they're like, well, we just, we, if nothing pops out, we don't, we don't really care. And I was like, well, well, who's looking at your survey for title for easements and encroachments and liens? And they're like, well, we don't do surveys. I'm like, we don't. <laughs> I'm like, you have, you have 35 parts. You don't do surveys. No, we don't have to worry about it. I was just like, whoa. Um, or I think that's a pretty big operator. For, you know, I don't know what those parts are worth, but a million a piece here in a $30 million portfolio, that's a pretty big deal. And you don't pay for surveys. It's like, um, well, I can't do legitimate title objections if I don't have a, a survey in front of me. And and I get other people saying, I had a, I was buying a wholesale deal from a guy and he said, I said, what do you have done? Do you have a survey done? Do you have title commitment? Do you have a phase one? He goes, oh, you don't need a phase one on this one. It's in a nice area. Nice area. I was, I was like, I'm gonna I'll I'll pay for phase one, all right? You know, but they're these are pretty good sized guys. So I mean, so I, you know, I tell you that to say, you know, I have some clients. I had a lady yesterday. She called me. She goes, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't I didn't pay for these things on my first deal. And she's calling me on the second deal. I go, that's okay. You're now aware and you're doing the second deal. There are people who are 30 deals in and are running running rogue. Like oh, I don't need that. I'm like you need that, you know, and 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 I'm not. This isn't, you know, you don't you don't ask the the barber if you need a haircut, right? Because right. the barber's always going to say you do. I'm like, I don't own the survey company. I don't own the phase one company. Like this is not me trying to drum up the legal bill. This is this is me giving you legitimate legal advice or just practical advice to protect you. And and it, you know, it's kind of like talking to my kids. Sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. But yeah. <laughs> So that's definitely a good tip to, to you know, I, I say, I say, be paranoid, you know, but be paranoid in your due diligence. Um, don't and, and at the end of the day, I think it's long-term uh, safe investment is what you look for. I mean, uh, for, for like syndicators like you or I, we look at risk before reward. Uh, you want to make sure you don't lose what you put in, forget about what you're going to make. That, absolutely. And I, I know Frank Roth, who's obviously one of the, the titans in our industry, he always references Sam Zell, you know, who's probably the biggest Titan in the industry. Which it's hard to get access to, right? I'd love to have him on my podcast. Here I am calling him out, so maybe he'll do it. Um, but but he talks about that, you know, risk reward rate, risk reward analysis, risk reward ratio, and you want to look for asymmetric risk reward profile. Yeah. And uh, a lot of guys don't don't do that. I mean, I've got some people that are LPs in my deals, and they're like, "No, I don't like this deal. I want the deal. I want that last deal." I'm like, "Well, that last deal was." riskier because it was infill it was more of a medium lift or heavy lift this current deal is right down the fairway it's hard to screw up so you're not going to get the same yield and they're like but i want that yield like it's not gonna happen yeah if i if i offered that yield in this deal i wouldn't even be calling you i'd have filled it up by now you know okay. so it's important to have that and i have that uh view on life i think is a risk reward palette ratio so that's good absolutely what other what other tips and tips Tips can you share, Harsha, or, or, or if you've got any stories, uh, stories or nightmares, nightmare scenarios you can share, those are, those are always fun too. 
Well, nightmare scenarios, I wouldn't call it nightmare, but uh, the first part, you probably noticed, I mean, we had like a heavy, heavy workload on the title work at closing. That, that was something that we did not expect. And yeah, I remember you famously saying that was one of your worst like title experiences you've had in your entire career. Um, that, so it, it, it pushed the closing by a couple of days and we... Uh, we had to kind of go back and forth with the title company, I guess. So, uh, so that was a big. Uh, and again, I was glad to have I was glad to have you and your team by my side to kind of walk through it. But that was a painful, uh, I guess, like 14, 15 days to to get that done. And uh, and again, going back to tips, I guess the uh, moving newly, relatively into this space, the biggest challenge for me was, uh, well, you have so many deals on the market. Uh, on, on the, uh, in the in the multifamily space, you, you see a, a listing, you put in an offer, but most of the listings in our space, all of the park space right now, I mean, for some reason, for guys like you who have been in the market for a while and guys like me who are relatively new, we feel like the cap rates have compressed so much that you don't find anything meaningful on the market. So acquisitions has been like a real pain point. Uh, and we've, we've been trying in multiple creative ways to find uh, find ways to acquire properties at rates that we feel are good for business. Uh, direct mail marketing, direct phone calls, uh, trying to have someone work for you uh, who can lead you to the mom and pop owner so you can buy directly from them. So that I think has been like a, a biggest challenge in, in the industry. It takes a lot of work, uh, which we were not expecting, but we're putting in right now. Uh, I think over time, hopefully that will reward us with more properties. But uh, that is something that's been something that we were not expecting to see in the space. But we right away, like I think, like one month after, like we got the last park under contract, we realized, you know what, it's not easy. It took us fifteen hundred letters to get that one asset in uh, Nebraska that we closed. Uh, that's kind of why when we realized we have to scale up those operations by multiple fold to at least be hopeful of finding more properties. And as days pass by, more folks are entering into the space. They see this as a stable uh, risk mitigated asset class for how fluctuant the economy is. And it's getting even more difficult to find these deals. No, I, I definitely see that personally. And I hear that from people all the time. I think um, one thing that I know you're doing uh, that, that I'll caution others to also do is to not lower your standards. Um, now you have to be aware of market conditions. It's going to be hard to find the 12 cap on market, right? The 10 cap on market, probably even the seven or eight at this point. Uh, off market, yeah, those deals can be found. They're just hard because there's so much competition space. I hear other people saying, well, I wanted to get this, but it wasn't available. So I went to this. And that's things like I went to private utilities. I, I went for a lower cap rate. I paid for pro forma rents. I capitalized the park on home income. These are things that, you know, those were, those were the four cardinal sins, you know, back in 2014 when I got started. And, and to some degree, you know, like I bought septic this year. I don't like, I'm under contract on septic. I don't like septic as much as private, but I inspect the septic. There, I, and one of them failed inspections. We had to sell or replace it. The other one was, 2000, was new in 2015. Okay. I'll take that. That's a mitigated risk, right? A risk reward profile. And that's a 12, that one, the one that I'm under contract for is a 12 cap and it's got septic, right? But Hey, it's a great pricing. And it was, it was, we got it first day on market from a residential realtor. So lucky, right? That it didn't hit the, it didn't hit the airways yet. Um, but that's something that I think people are making mistakes on in this competitive market. And um, I look forward, I don't know, I say look forward. I feel like a, 
what's Sam Zell's nicknames the Grave Dancers. Maybe maybe he's my mentor here. But I look forward to the day three years from now, four years from now, when a lot of these guys, you know, realize, man, I shouldn't have paid a four cap on pro forma in rural Iowa just because it says Iowa at the end at the end of address. Like you're going to end up choking on that deal when you try to get a new loan. We try to exit. Um, what if you can't implement right now? Home prices are up like crazy. HUD, HUD states, you got set install case prices are, that are getting out of control. Um, you got to use, you got to have a, an understanding of the risks um, instead of rose colored glasses. And so that's, that'd be a, a, my tip response for other listeners based on, based on your comment, which is not uncommon that look, I'm my choke point in my supply chain is deal is reasonable deal flow. And it's the same. It's the same for most everybody. Some guys are solving the problem by buying nine-unit parks in Mississippi on Lagoon and you know park-owned homes. I could agree more. I've I've seen investors like uh, compromise a lot on their acquisition criteria, and there's always some sort of justification when you ask them, saying, "Oh, you know what? The market's really hot, and we have to go get this property." Well, you did not have to get that property. Uh, if you look at long-term risk-reward ratio, I mean, and I think that's kind of like uh, where we uh, feel like one of our very strong points is the the group of investors that I work with. They're all doctors. They're not looking for like, active cash. They're looking for generational wealth. They just place their money in stable returns. So we don't have the pressure to meet any criteria saying, "Hey, we need so many assets per year." So we just look each deal by its own and say, "Okay, this meets our criteria. We're going to go into that." So. Uh, but that's kind of not what we see in the market. A couple of days ago, I had a meeting with another doctor who is also a mobile home park owner now. They bought like four parks in one year. I, I was like dumbfounded. And I was like, how did you buy, how did you find them? And I was like, well, we found all of them on the market. We bought it at like five and a half cap, but I think they have potential to become 10 cap. Well, do you have an operator? No, they don't have an operator. Do you live in the same towns? No, I don't live in the same town. Well, how do you want to plan on infilling? No answer. So. I think those are some of the mistakes like that. I mean, I know being on, like being with the right company, I know that's not a good move, uh, but but they don't. Uh, and uh, it, it just pains me to see what's happening in the market with some of the investors. No, that's, that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, I see it happen all the time too. It's like, I'm going to fill these 50 lots. It's like new homes or used homes. I'm going to look for used homes. Like, yeah. have you looked for used homes during your due diligence? Because I'm having trouble finding used homes right now, and you're and you're banking on fifty of them. Right. Are you, you have cash? Are those twenty grand a pop. You have a million dollars cash. No, I'm just gonna get a loan. You're gonna get a loan on used co- used homes. Okay, buy from who? <laughs> it's harder, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. from the land from the land lender, maybe. Uh, what kind of leverage you need down payment? Who's gonna do the set? I mean, it just it goes back to that. Uh, you you. You as you as a doctor, you know, I, don't, I know you're not in the same lane of you know medicine, but you know the post mortem, you know the right. post mortem. Uh, I don't know if it's Jacko Willink or it's probably not, it's lots of guys say do the pre mortem. Right. If I was if there was I was to die, how would it happen? And then and then try to solve. You know I'm gonna die because I, I smoke, I drink, I'm overweight, and you know I stay up too late. Okay, well that's a problem, right? You can solve that before it becomes a problem. That becomes the work was dead. Well, people should do that analysis, and you know. Yeah. Well, what if I can't buy used homes? What if I can't get loans of these? And then what they're going to do is going to talk themselves out of paying a forecast on a deal that can't support new homes. You know, and so. Um, but it's unfortunately, as is, I don't know if it's Benjamin Franklin said, you know, common sense is not all that common. 
And, and I see a lot of what, trying, what we, we're trying to do here. We're educating people to, you know, solve try to help them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, some of the uh, stock market terms uh, hold true in mobile home park industry. The, it's, there's a famous term called FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. I see that a lot in mobile home park space right now. You just want to get in. I want to get in. It's so hot like this. But you, okay, get in, but get in the right way. Yeah, you're right. When I bought my first single family house, I was right out of college. And and I had 14, and it was actually six months out. I'd saved up $14,000. And that's what I need for a down payment. And, you know, mowed grass and, you know, babysat and painted fences and, you know, and didn't spend it. So I'd saved up enough money for a down payment. Um, I think my parents lent me the closing cost, you know, and couldn't even get over the hump at that time. And uh, I only had 14000 If I struck, if I missed, there's one strike. I don't have more money. If the first deal was bad, I was not going to do a second deal. So I was like, it's got to be right. And I got to hustle. I got to get it done. Well, I see these guys jumping in mobile home parks. I got to get the, you know, I'll tell them. Uh, and a lot of times in my class, I'm like, hey, I'm not here to opine as your business deal unless you want me to. I'm mean, going to do your title work. You do, oh, great. You want to do your, your zoning letter? Great. LLC, great. But sometimes guys say, no, no. What do you see that's a problem? And I'll, and I'll tell them, this is a huge problem. I wouldn't do this deal if I were you. I wouldn't touch a 10 foot pole. And some of them say, good point. But I got to get in the game. It's my first deal. And then I'll learn from this. And I'm like, but if your first deal ruins it for you and you lose your money or you or you work yourself to death or you ruin your investment, your investment profile, your reputation, it's your first and last deal. So it's my dad always says this, the best deal I never did, the best deal I ever did is the one I didn't do that I shouldn't have done. I couldn't agree more with that statement. You know, you better be out of the game than like get in and do a mistake. That's that's going to be more correct. Good. Right. Well, Harsha, this is good. Anything else you want to share with our listeners? I think the big thing for since this is more mobile home park focused uh, podcast, and your audience are mostly mobile home park folks, uh, pretty much getting into the game. I'm very new to the game. Uh, I still consider myself taking baby steps towards learning more uh, from experienced folks like Ford and everybody else. Uh, it's, it's a steep learning curve. Uh, there is a lot of places where people can do mistakes. So try to associate yourself with experienced people in the industry and don't just buy a park because you have to buy a park, buy a park which you think will make sense financially. And uh, making a mistake is very easy and it's very tempting. Uh, that's how the market is. Uh, I've been through a couple of markets, so I know uh, how things can go wrong. Uh, so I guess like that's kind of a word of caution. But again, like it's, it's an amazing risk mitigated space. It's at this time it's my favorite investment space. I've been in stock market. I've been in angel investing. I've been in commercial space. I've been in multifamily space. Now I'm in mobile home park space. So I get when I look at returns or like let's say I have like X capital to invest. Uh, every investor has separate motive. Like at the end of the day, for folks that I work with for doctors, you always want a risk-mitigated way of investing for generational wealth growth. And I honestly feel like MHV space is a great spot to be at right now and going forward for at least, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years on some zoning loss change and whatnot. But uh, just be careful when you play off. That's kind of my take home point, I guess. All right. Great tips, Harsh. Appreciate it. Where can people find you after this episode? Uh, we have a website, uh, www.physicianestate.com. You'll have all my contact information there, just like real estate, but physician estate. Uh, we're like a group of 60 to 70 doctors 
investing our funds together and doing syndication deals. Uh, if you're a high net worth individual uh, and if you're willing to or looking to save some uh, money in the form of taxes or get some tax payments back to the real estate status, if you have probably more than happy to get on a phone call with anyone and talk to you guys. So, yeah. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Arjun. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.